It's impossible to be as famous as the Beatles without at least a few conspiracy theories raising their heads. This week we hear from the Cavern Club tour guide, Dale Roberts, whose job it is to dispel some of the wacky stories surrounding the band. He tells us the truth behind some of the myths, including that story about Paul McCartney. I'm Ellen Kerwin. And I'm Laura Davis, and this is Beatles City. enjoyed this interview yeah it was it was a great interview it was just nice to hear about well it was nice to get the perspective of Dale who obviously day in day out he's just speaking to Beatles fans about the Beatles and of course one of the most frustrating things about his job must be when people come up to him and just ask him about really crazy stories and he's got to obviously put them down especially considering he works for the cabin club and he says one of the most frequently asked things he asks he gets asked by people is oh so this isn't even the cabin club is it and you know blah, blah, blah. and that must be so annoying for him so he talks to us about a little bit why people have those views and he also just dispels them and yeah p- puts them puts them right so it was interesting the sort of different things that people come up and ask him. What struck you? What what did you think was the most interesting question people had for him? Um, I think it probably is that the Paul McCartney is dead theory that people are always spouting to him. He's got this throughout his time. So before he was at the Cabin Club, he was also doing the the tours. So he'd go to Strawberry Fields and he'd visit all the landmarks. And he said he'd get there, you know, and he'd see little bits of graffiti maybe on the Strawberry Fields gates that say, you know, Paul is dead and things like that. And that would always be a conversation starter and people would genuinely believe it and say and, you know, ask him his thoughts. So he tells us what he thinks about the theory, but you'll have to listen to, yeah, to, to find out the rest. You do a lot of Beatles tours and you've been doing them for many years now. I think during your time, you must have had every question under the sun. But what would you say is the most common question you get asked? The most common question? Okay, well, on a personal note, that normally the question I get asked the most is, who is your favourite Beatle? And that, that might sound just so generic. It's not even relevant to the cavern or relevant to tours. But whenever someone stops, they're just like, who's your favourite? Yeah, and I can never give them a, an answer to that one. And if I'm forced, I normally say John. But if we go back to 2018, the amount that Paul McCartney did for the city, um, I, I couldn't stop you know, loving Paul. I, I, Paul was my favourite. Um, but my default favourite Beatle is John Lennon, and I, I adore John. Um, yeah, just he's what got me into the Beatles. He's what you know ramped up my enthusiasm for the Beatles. And um, George Harrison's always up there as well. George has his moments where George is by far my favorite Beatle. Quite clearly, I, I love the Beatles, and hence why this is a good profession for me, a good job. As- aside from who's my favorite Beatle, um, the questions I normally get asked about the cavern. The first one is, is this the original cavern? That that's always the first and foremost question that someone asks on a tour of the cavern. Um, normally I, I just go down the route, especially because I'm the Cavern's tour guide. I'll go, I, I'll get to that one in a minute, you know, it's, and <laughs> I, I, I laugh it off really. Um, but that, that's normally the first thing that people ask me, you know, is this the original Cavern? Um, and then it's, was the Cavern further down the street? Uh, I thought that the Cavern's now a car park. You know, that's another one that people say. Yeah, there's yeah, many, many uh, legends about the cavern and half truths and, and some just outright myths as well people ask about but not my favorite one I, I started off as a tour guide in um, 2016 now um, and my favorite question was whenever we drove a bus past the Beatles statues on the pier head 
uh, I'd have people say, wow, I didn't realize the Beatles were that tall. You know, the Beatles <laughs> statues on the pier. I'd, seriously, I had many, many questions. I loved it. Whenever someone asked, well, said that statement, I laughed my head off at it. It was brilliant. But yeah, I honestly, I, I at least got asked it. Within the space of two years, I got asked it about 20, 25 times, I reckon, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I can't believe people actually thought they were life size. What the massive? Yeah. Like, I, I wonder how big they actually are. Actually, it might be worth looking into. <laughs> they're, they're, they're eight foot, I eight believe. Foot the Beatles right statues. Well. Yeah, they're eight foot tall. Yeah, I believe the one point two tons as well. Uh, so yeah, I, I always just joked and said, I know the Beatles were a big band, but they, they weren't that big. You know, uh, all the all the best corny jokes came out to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's one of the main reasons actually we got you on today because we want to address some of them misconceptions and the the you know the myths that you must get asked all the time and you know you must just be blown away by. I think one of the biggest ones that you haven't touched on yet would be probably um the Paul's dead conspiracy theory. I mean, do you get that <laughs> all the time as well? Uh, yeah, anyone under the age of thirty who gets on the magical mystery tour bus. So just just to lay the groundwork here, I, I, I was head of market for the open top tour buses, the big red buses, um, which is what opened the doors for tour guide. And I had no intentions of ever being a tour guide. I was just a huge, huge Beatles fan. Uh, and then I went down the route of designing a, a new tour for the city, which was the City and Beatles tour. So that got me into tour guide. And, and I can tell you right now, from the second I started guiding, it, it became evidence of, of the demographics of people who come on tour buses Anybody under the age of 30 would get to Strawberry Field and start sniggering. They'd see the, the you know, the Billy Shears and R.I.P. Paul all over the gate to Strawberry Field. And they'd ask me, is Paul McCartney dead? And I, I honestly, I've been asked that countless amounts of times. And it's always by people under the age of 30. Uh, because lots of us, including myself, when I first became a huge fan of the Beatles, I'd sit and I'd watch YouTube videos and it's not long before you fall down the rabbit hole of conspiracy. And all of a sudden, I was watching you know, documentaries and conspiracy videos about Paul McCartney died in a car crash and was replaced by an imposter called William Gamble. And it went, it went down that route. Um, I don't believe that conspiracy, <laughs> which many people will probably be happy to hear that our tour guides in the city are not conspiracy theorists. Um, but yeah, I don't believe it. It's impossible to replace Paul McCartney with uh, an even better Paul McCartney. When you sit long and wide and road, let it be, you know, <laughs> band on the run. Paul McCartney's written most of his best work uh, after most people say that he, well, most people, most conspiracy theorists say that he, he died in a car crash. So it's extremely interesting, but Truthfully, it was one of the reasons I got into the Beatles. It, it, I was obsessed with the music. I was obsessed with the fan theories behind them, the meanings behind the songs, the lyrics. Uh, and then I got hooked into this conspiracy, which I didn't believe, but it was just so intriguing, all the messages in the songs and stuff like that. It, it got me into the Beatles. So I can never, you know, I'm never angry about it. When people ask me about it, I laugh. I think it's, you know, it's... It's it's an intriguing um, question, and it's probably the most famous conspiracy in rock and roll. So, it, it's yeah. certainly interesting. Well, I think that's a testament to how big the band is, because you know when there's YouTube conspiracy theories going about you that you're gaining, <laughs> you know, you've got a big fan base or you've gained some sort of traction within <laughs> exactly. your career, and you know they've made it in in that sense when it comes to conspiracy theories. <laughs> it's not only that; it's a fifty. What well, it's now fifty three years of age 
it's a 53-year-old conspiracy theory. So when we consider any popular conspiracy, uh, even the, the, the moon land, and you know, just to pick one out, of, <laughs> it, it's, it's got a massive longevity. It's got yeah. a huge lifespan of people who still to this very day believe that Paul McCartney was replaced by an imposter. It's it's unbelievable. So it's a it's a massive, massive conspiracy. And I will also say I've met people who don't only laugh about it, but I have met people over the years who, who truly believe it. And and, and I steer clear of those people who stay a mile well, away from yeah, it. Yeah, I was gonna say, is there anyone when you know they bring it up on tours that is like avidly a believer and you know really gets angry or anything? Yeah, like that no one really gets angry, but I have met one or two people who feel so passionate about it they, they really truly believe it and they don't get angry because i i don't give them space the second i realize that somebody actually truly believes this i i just become very dismissive really and just uh, try and get away from that person as quickly as possible because it's not something i it, it's not something i'm unaware of i understand the paul mccartney conspiracy about him dying in a car crash and being replaced i understand it but I, i'm not there to humor that especially not on a professional level you know, when, when you get people who are really, really into it, I, I have to look at them. I'm a professional. I, I represent the industry here. I can't sit here and humor this conversation, you know, that I'm somehow now part of this conspiracy to continue perpetuating the myth of Paul McCartney. It, it's unbelievable. But I, I have had some people who are passionate, but no one getting angry with me about it. Not Not yet anyway. Well, let's hope you never have to deal with that. But um, with you being doing the cavern tours at the moment, um, you mentioned before about, you know, is this the real cavern or this isn't even the real cavern? I mean, that must be one that frustrates you quite a bit and you deal with, I assume, daily. I I deal with it massive amount. I haven't dealt with it as long as our other tour guides or the owners and other managers of the cavern. Um, but it's something I deal with currently a, a, a huge amount. Um, so for me, it was two and a half, three years ago. I got a phone call from Bill Heckel, who owns the cavern, and he said, we want you coming to work for us. Uh, and that was a huge moment for me. I've, I've always been a huge fan of the cavern club uh, ever since I was 22, what, 21, 22 years of age. And I went drinking there and I used to love the live music. I'd go there most Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday nights. I never braved the weekends. Um, but I, I absolutely adored the cavern. I loved the place. And then all of a sudden I started working there and I became a tour guide. I was a tour guide on the Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, and then afterwards I, I became the guy who looks after all the social media for Cavern City Tours. That's about 18 different social media accounts. So my day-to-day -day job is looking after the social media, the digital marketing side uh, of everything that goes online. Uh, and then about a year and a half ago, about 18 months to be precise, I was pulled into the office by Bill, and Bill said, Dale, for the first time, we want to set up tours of the Cavern Club, and we want you to set them up. So I was very proud of that. I set up tours of the Cavern. So what I do is I go online in the morning time, and any um, news article or any press that we've been given, I, I click on it, and I, I see the comment sections underneath, which is, this is not the original Cavern. The Cavern was further down the street. The Cavern was on the opposite side of the street. The Cavern is now a car park. All the old myths that I, I see almost on a daily basis online. Uh, and then I go down into the club and, and teach people the actual real history and tell them about the changes that have happened to the cavern over the years. Um, so it is it is frustrating because I can't fight every battle on the internet. And I have written many articles. I've written for the Cavern Club. I've written for Independent Liverpool more recently as well. Um, all about the history of the cavern. Um, it, it's been well documented. It's online. It's there for people to research. Uh, and then we also have a, a tour that for the past 18 months has been completely free of charge. It doesn't cost anyone.
on a penny. And it, it's still happening now to this day when the cabin's been shut um, for the past five months over lockdown. Um, once we opened up in August, we opened it with the free tour still available for people. Um, so it's not something that we hide. It, it's, the history of the cavern is is freely and openly available to everyone who wants to find out. It, it's not a conspiracy theory, you know. And so, how do you go about explaining it to people? And I, I assume do you do it throughout throughout the tour, and you know, do you walk people around and tell them it gradually, or do you just go straight into a history lesson for those who ask in particular? Well, a tour is something that's quite complex because, one, some people are there to be entertained. Some people are there because they've never visited the cavern before. Some people are there just they've been dragged along with the family. So for me, when it's face-to-face with people, I I don't want to be a a history teacher and just launch into, oh, this is this. I want to have fun with them. I want them to be personal. I want them to ask questions. I want them to be intrigued. I want them to feel the magic of not only the cavern but of Matthew Street as well. Um, so that does that, but now I start from absolute scratch. I start with the fact that the street, well, the, the land used to be owned by a man called Matthew Pluckington, uh, and that he eventually would build up that street. It'd become a, a quite a, a populated warehouse street, a narrow, narrow alley um, called Pluckington Alley, and then eventually they changed it to Matthew Street named after Matthew Pluckington. And then I take them all the way to 1957 when the cavern first opened up and its first owner, Alan Sithner, opened its doors as a jazz venue. And then I take it from there. I go through exactly where the original entrance used to be, which again, we don't hide at the Cavern Club. If anyone visits Matthew Street, uh, you'll see the Silla Black statue. And, and we have a big sign that says, you were here at the original entrance of the cavern. Um, what many people don't know, and it's something that the tour really gives people the opportunity to explore, is that I then open up the door, the one that is just behind Silla Black, the original entrance location. We open that fire exit door and we take everyone into the cavern via the fire exit, which is is quite something, you know, because people assume that that's just, this is where the original cavern was. And then they go to the cavern's entrance and feel disappointed. They don't realize that if you entered into the original entrance location, it takes you into the cavern to this very day. Uh, so that, that's something that's quite surprising for people. Uh, but then on the tour, I take them around. I take them um, not, not even onto the front stage. I, I walk through the cavern very quickly, and I take them through to the live lounge, and I give them a full history about how the cavern's changed, its its dimensions, and um, the famous people who've played here in modern times, You know the, the cultural impact the club's had around the world, where it currently stands. In, 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 like right now, the Cavern Club still to this very day, according to TripAdvisor, is the eighth greatest landmark in the UK. That that's huge. That's a massive, massive thing. You know, Buckingham Palace is the ninth greatest landmark on TripAdvisor, so it, that's that's a big deal. You know, and um, so that, that's the type of things to tell people on tours. Uh, and I can go into it in much more details if, if we want. Uh, but but that that's the tour in a nutshell. Well, yeah, so going into the sort of history of it, I suppose you get a lot, the whole, you know, it used to be on the opposite side of the street, didn't it? And that must be another one you get a lot. Can you you tell me a little bit about the history behind that rumour or that myth? Yeah, of course. In 1957, the cavern opened as a jazz venue, so Alan Sithen was the first owner of the cavern. And so the first thing that the cavern was to experience was not rock and roll, it was actually skiffle and jazz music. It was strictly jazz, pretty much. Um, eventually, that was in 1957, so there was a rock and roll boom happening in this city anyway. Loads of skiffle bands were forming decent beat groups. And by 1960, a man called Bill Harry 
founded a magazine called the Mersey Beat Movement, uh, well, the Mersey Beat Magazine, which formed the Mersey Beat Movement, sorry. Um, and in 1959, Alan Sithner sold the cavern to Ray McFall. And so that was the golden era of the cavern, then the Mersey Beat Movement, the Mersey Beat scene taking place in this city. Now, by 1966, Ray had had so much pressure for many years, not only financially, but he also had pressure from the council, which was saying to Ray that he needed to have a fire exit inside the Cavern Club itself. And he also needed general renovations. If anyone's ever spoken about the Cavern, anyone who was at the original Cavern, they'll all say about the legendary Cavern smell, the fact that it stunk of toilet disinfectant and smoke and sweat. That was the legendary uh, cavern era and the cavern smell at that time. But by 1966, the cavern actually expanded. It became three times the size. They closed what was the original entrance. They made that the fire exit, and they moved the entrance to exactly where it is to this very day. But that wasn't the end of it. In uh, 1973, and when you consider between 66 and 73, there was many great artists who played the cavern club. I mean, Paul McCartney came back to the cavern in, in that time. Um, Queen, Freddie Mercury and Queen played the cavern on the 31st of October 1970 so that's a huge one as well uh, status quo many great bands but by 1973 and this is where all of the myth comes from it was the most turbulent year in the cavern club's history um, British Rail had placed a compulsory purchase order number 8 to 12 Matthew Street they needed to build a ventilation shaft for the city's underground railway loop which still exists to this very day but the ventilation shaft, I should say, still it doesn't. It was never ever built. The Cavern Club was demolished for no reason at all. It was it seemed because, as I say, British Rail brought in the bulldozers. They leveled the the buildings on ground level, uh, and the Cavern Club temporarily moved across the street. So it is a half truth. In a, in fact, you know the Cavern Club. It certainly was in the early days when it was a jazz club and a skiffle venue, when it was that famous rock and roll venue until 1966. And then from 1966, when everyone was already disappointed in the cavern, uh, it was always at number 10 Matthew Street. Unfortunately, in 1973, as I say, British Rail brought in the bulldozers, levelled the buildings on ground level, filled the cavern full of rubble, uh, and the cavern moved for just three years across the street, less than three years, in fact, until it changed its name to Revolution. And after Revolution, they changed the name of the new cavern to Eric's. And it was still owned by a company called Cavern Enterprises, so still technically owned by the cavern until 1980, uh, when the rights to the cavern's name were sold, as well as the patch of land opposite. And the patch of land opposite, which had never had a ventilation shaft built through it, was then excavated by a man called David Backhouse, so a local architect. Uh, he carefully excavated the cavern. He discovered the foundations weren't stable enough to reopen it. Uh, so they would carefully dismantle the cavern at that point. And then they would rebuild it brick by brick in the exact same location. So to summarize the cavern's history, and as I say, it's a very long thing. It normally takes me 15 minutes to explain. So I'm trying to cut <laughs> so much out in my head right now. Um, but the Cavern Club reopened 1984 in number 10 Matthew Street. Well, technically spanning across number 8 to 12 Matthew Street. But in number 10 Matthew Street, uh, on 70% of the original footprints and using 15,000 of the original bricks. So that's, as I say, a very, very, very brief overview of the Cavern Club's history uh, and where the origins of that myth about it being across the street come from. Well, you do it very well. It's almost as if you'd think it was your job, Dale, because <laughs> you, you tell it so very well. But um, uh, one thing you mentioned is, is about Eric's, and that itself became quite a famous venue in itself, didn't it? Eric's was a legendary venue. Yeah. It, 
I'll be honest as well, Eric still is an absolutely fantastic live music venue. He exists on Matthew Street still. But it was legendary for the punks. Whenever we think of Matthew Street, we think of it being at the forefront of the rock and roll revolution, you know. The yeah. Beatles playing there, the Merseybeat movement, the Searchers, Jerry, you know, Scylla. But in the 70s, it was at the forefront of the punk revolution. You know, bands like Dead or Alive, Frankie Goes to Hollywood have a link to Eric's. Elvis Costello, the Ramones, the Clash, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, a Flock of Seagulls never played in Eric's, but they got their band name, uh, A Flock of Seagulls, from a night out when they were drunk in Eric's, which I think is almost better than playing the venue, to be honest with you. I think that's great. Yeah. But Eric's is a legendary place. It's a legendary venue. Um, and it, it's something that we should be very proud of. For me, the, the real magic, not only of the cavern uh, or the Eric's, is the fact that it's on Matthew Street. Matthew Street itself like we don't fully value it as much as we should do in this city, and um, we we consider it now as almost for tourists, don't we? I think as locals, that's what yeah, we see it as. Yeah, as locals, yeah. Or, or it's legendary. The world would not be the same place if it was not for this little, small, tiny, narrow, humble side street in Liverpool called Matthew Street. It changed the world forever, and something we should be grateful for. Yeah, definitely. And, and a fact that I read um, just before coming on this call, actually, about the cavern, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I might have, um, I might say it back wrong, but I think it's th the cavern as it is now, it's been open three or four times longer than the original one had. Is that right? Like, well, th what people see as the original cavern, um, you know, it's now actually been open and it's been standing longer than that. Three, yeah. three times longer, I think it is. I like that fact. That was a good yeah. one. Now, to be honest with you, I can't work it out off the top of my head because maths is certainly not my strong point. <laughs> but yeah, the, the cavern in its its new state has been open since 1984 until, of course, this very day. The original cavern realistically stood from 1957 until 1966. And then beyond 1966, it changed once again. Yeah, it uh, changed again. Even though so. it was in the same location, it changed. Um, people still didn't consider it the original cavern. And the reason why is because they fitted working toilets. And when you consider that, that that's mind-blowing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, kids, when they used to go to the cavern, it was a young, it was exciting. It, it was a young place. It, yeah. And you go in, it, it had a particular smell. It was very exciting. And when it got to 1966, the kids were a little bit older who used to visit the cavern club. They were a bit older, and they just thought it was a bit more sanitised. It was a bit too professional by 1966. So that's the impression I get whenever I've read through books or even chatted, I've chatted to many people and it's a point of pride of theirs to go, I was at the original cavern and I'm always so intrigued to hear that. I want to hear the stories about it because it. I don't blame people. I don't blame anyone who goes on the internet and goes, it's not the original cavern. And the reason behind them saying that is because they visited the original cavern and they, yeah. it's almost like a I survived T-shirt, I survived the cavern, you know. <laughs> it's a huge point of pride, it, and rightly so. It's such. If I had a time machine, it'd be the first place to go, the Cavern Club in, in, in the golden era, yeah. to watch the Beatles playing. It'd be unbelievable. Um, but, yeah, I, I understand there's a point of pride. I certainly do, but no matter what we think, the Cavern Club in its original state couldn't exist in 2020, in this health and safety era that we rightly live in, you know. Um, the original Cavern Club simply would have had to have changed anyway. And the best way in which it could have changed is into its current state, which it's into this very day. Now, it's took a lot of turbulence, a lot of history to get to this point, um, but it, it certainly would have had to have got to this point anyway for the yeah. Cavern Club to ever have existed. 
Well, well, that's a really good point. So, you know, if people even wanted to see it in the state it's in now and walk down and, you know, experience live music in there today, that it had to have go through them changes because you would not simply would not have been able to do it in its, you know, current state. And when you mentioned about people wearing the I Survive T-shirt, well, <laughs> it, it, it's almost like, well, yeah, you did because it's, it was a mess down there, wasn't it? So um, it needed this to happen, that's for sure. Well, there's the, the famous story about John Lennon. They returned back um, to the cavern. This would have been 1963 for their last ever gig. Um, and at this point, they were already national stars. And it was clear that they were about to go on to international superstardom. So everyone comes to the cavern. Everyone crams in. They were on a contractual obligation. So Ray McFall, the owner, had already booked them into this gig well in advance and Brian Epstein said, we have to do this gig. So they came back to the cavern. And there's the story that the second they got on stage, it was so electric, but everyone was smoking in there. There was so much sweat in the air that the sweat started dripping down the walls and onto the amps. And it blew all the electricity inside the cavern club. And one of the first voices you heard was John's. And he shouted to Paul, we should never, ever have came back here. And it's quite tragic when you hear that, but it's true. The Beatles knew that they, they couldn't be fitting in the Cavern Club anymore. It was not a place that was purpose-built for live music. It was somewhere that became the central hub of live music in this city, but it certainly wasn't built for that purpose. It was unsafe as a venue, um, but legendary. And that's what I mean. I, would I love to go there? Absolutely. Did everyone who go there survive there? Yes, they did. There was never any instance there uh, of, of anything that was really unsafe, but it wasn't a, a, a purpose-built venue at that point. It was an underground cave. It was primarily a bacon cellar um, before the, and a fruit and veg cellar before that. Uh, it, it was an underground cave that has became legend. And, and thank, I think it's brilliant. So um, another another funny myth. Well, I don't know if you find these myths funny, to be honest. <laughs> You're probably really sick of them. But I'm dying another... inside here. With them. It's, it's hitting me. <laughs> another myth is, um, you know, didn't uh, people saying that the cavern used to be a car park? Or at one point it was a car park. So where did the origins of that one come from? The origins of this myth, it's very interesting. And the second you understand how this myth started, you understand why people still say it to this day. There's two reasons behind this. One is when the Cavern Club, the original cavern, was seemingly gone forever uh, because British Rail placed a compulsory purchase order on it. What they did is they brought the bulldozers in and they leveled the cavern on ground level. When they dug deep into you know, the foundations of the Cavern Club, they discovered that there's water which flows underneath Matthew Street and it prevented them building a ventilation shaft and understandably so. So they couldn't build that ventilation shaft, meaning that the cavern was demolished for no reason at all. At this point, what happened is the sign which said cavern on it, it moved to the other side of the street. But on the other side, where number 10, well, number 8 to 12 Matthew Street stood, was nothing. It was a bare patch of land there was nothing that existed on there. So what did people do? They parked the cars on it. And that's the origins of that myth. Everybody who came to the cavern from 1973 until roughly 1984, when, when of course, Cavern Walks was built in its place and the Cavern Club itself, everyone would leave the city going, the Cavern Club's not even there. The Cavern Club is now a car park. And that is completely understandable. You know, I understand why everyone left and said it's a car park. Technically, it was 
What they didn't know is the cavern still existed underneath. It just been filled in full of rubble. The tops of the archways had been knocked down to prevent the buildup of gases, but the cavern was still there. So as I say, between 1980 and 1984, David Backhouse excavated the cavern and they rebuilt it in the exact same location. Now, there's a few questions here. As I say, the second issue is when he rebuilt the cavern, he was also building Cavern Walk Shopping Centre, which, of course, still exists to this day. It's a beautiful building. Um, But what they did is to, you know, compensate for the Cavern Club, they shifted it 90 degrees to the side. So as I say, if you enter into the original entrance, it brings you in right next to the front stage of the Cavern Club. They used the 1966 entrance as the new entrance of the Cavern Club, the location of it. Uh, And they also built a live lounge inside, okay? So the live lounge is much better for live music, fantastic acoustics, better visibility. It's the stage where Paul McCartney's played on three times now over the years as well, and Bo Diddley and Lonnie Donegan and many Rock and Roll Hall of Famers over the years. Uh, But at the back of the live lounge, you'll now find a car park. It's also a myth in modern times too, in a strange way. And again, it's not really a myth because if you mirror the number 10 Matthew Street, the original footprint of the Cavern Club, part of that original footprint enters into a car park, which is now underground from Cavern Walks. So it's an extremely confusing, complex history. And whenever someone says one of these myths, there's a slight bit of truth in the myth, but equally it's mainly myth. So that's, that's very confusing, isn't it? I think yeah. many people listening will probably have to come on the tour to fully get the head round <laughs> uh, changes to the cavern over the years. Yeah, well, it's definitely worth people going anyway um, to the tour because there's plenty more that obviously you're just not going to be able to touch on during <laughs> you know me speaking to you here. And also just to see it for yourself because it makes all, all the difference to go and have a walk around and also to watch some live music there and to see it really happening in real life. We have great bands who play here, and it's not all Beatles tribute bands. It's not all cover bands. We have monthly, well, nights, multiple monthly nights, um, including Lipper, including at the BBC, um, coming into the Cavern Club and having original music inside the venue. This happens all the time, you know, and that's what we're proud of, that we've got, of course, a great past, but we've got an exciting future as well. If you enjoyed this episode of Beatles City, please remember to subscribe, rate and review it on your favourite podcast app. We're releasing our final episode of this series a few days early, on Friday, which would have been John Lennon's 80th birthday. We'll be sharing memories of people who actually knew him in special tribute to the man who was taken from the world much too soon.